This is David Wilson and welcome to episode 36 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is talking to people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. Oh, sounds really good. Yeah, really good. I'm going to just hit record. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you, how do you prioritise your day? Because working on a boat, do you go with the kind of flow of the tide? I'm just going to record my end. And you, Well, the thing is, if you recorded locally and then on a separate track you record soon, then when I send you my recording, you can just line them up. That's the voice of my guest this week, Nick Dunkley, founder of Hindenburg Systems. This week is a special two-parter with the co-founder and creative director of Hindenburg Systems. Nick developed his door or digital audio workstation with more than 15 years experience with the Danish National Broadcasting Corporation and Community Radio and Zambia. To say the journey was a precarious one would be an understatement. What Nick and his colleagues have done over the last 10 years is created the most user-friendly door on the market. Nick's life has been a mixture of success and tragedy, but it's not stopped him from doing the main thing that's close to his heart, getting the spoken word out to your audience. All you have to do is press the record button. And I have the great pleasure of introducing Nick Dunkley from Hindenburg. Nick, hi. Hi. How are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. It's it, We've had some really, really busy uh, weeks. Well, actually, to be honest, it's been a really busy decade. So I'm a little bit tired, um, so bear with me. I love that. It's, it's a busy decade. Not many people can actually say that, but... Uh, I mean, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the program today. I feel really honoured. And I did reach out to you during the summer. I know you were away and uh, your good uh, colleague Martin said, Nick will reply to you when he comes back. And you duly did. So thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. So I wondered if you could maybe take the listeners on a bit of a journey. Um, why design a door system, a DAW system? So you don't think it's the most obvious thing to do, do you? <laughs> not really. <laughs> it isn't. No, not really. Uh, it, it's one of those stories, it, it came out of need. I was working on a project, and I think we'll get into that maybe a bit later. Um, but really, I I was uh, looking for a door that was easy to use for radio journalists. And even more specifically, I was actually working in the rural areas in Africa at the time. So I was looking for a door that was easy to use for spoken word production and could be used by anyone who didn't necessarily have an engineering background. Now, with that in mind, looking at the tools that were out there, and my background is I am actually a sound engineer, so I knew most of the tools that were out there already. So I was uh, thinking in lines of, uh, okay, maybe we could go with usual suspects like uh, Pro Tools or Audition, and they're all great tools, but they're a bit on the pricey end if you're in, in the rural areas. So then I thought, how about open source uh, projects like Audacity? That would make a lot of sense. And I uh, was sitting in the chalet at one time and actually trying to get some of these systems to work. And had a, <laughs> I actually had a really hard time figuring out how they actually work. Probably just because I it was used to other systems. But to be honest, after screaming and shouting for an evening, 
I thought, well, this is not going to work. How, how in God's name is anyone ever going to be able to to do this? It's just going to be, it's not encouraging. And that was really my main problem with this. It, it You need to have tools that encourage you to do the job that you want to do. And if you are a musician or something like that, then tools like, uh, again, Pro Tools or Logic or something like that, they are fantastic tools because they will encourage you because they work within the realm that you're used to. But if you're a radio journalist, it's a completely different situation. Um, You're not necessarily interested in audio engineering for one thing, but to be honest, just uh, trying to understand why a door is built the way it is. And if you really need to understand that, you actually have to have a background in analog engineering. Because if you look at a, a door today, uh, in, in they're still the same, more or less. Um, it is basically a, a replica of a, a studio. So if you've ever gone into a music studio, you'll see there's a huge sound desk with 72 strips and you'll have a, a 24 track tape recorder and you'll have effects and all that and that is basically what we just put into a computer and which is fine so if you actually have ever been in a studio like that and you feel comfortable behind a sound desk then you'll just be laughing if you sit in front of a door but then now imagine the situation you you take someone who's never done audio before who just wants to tell the story and you plant them in this analog studio where they got like all this equipment around them and you put them in a chair and then you as you leave the room you say you know you figure it out um we haven't really got any manuals or anything and even if we did you probably couldn't read it and then you just slam the door and leave and that is more or less the situation that many many storytellers are in they feel that they have a tool that's working against them more than with them. For the uninitiated, the people who are, you know, looking just to get the narration out or to interview people, can you dive into what a door is effectively? I know we've just talked about anachronisms. What does that mean, door? And how did they kind of really develop over the years, you know, from your perspective? Well, a door is, um, it stands for Digital Audio Workstation. And even that's not very encouraging, is it? Not at all. <laughs> Digital audio workstation. I'm not even quite sure what image that should provoke. Uh, but what it is, it, it's, it is a tool for recording audio. And if you can imagine a, a tape recorder, a, let's go with the analog, just to have a good old-fashioned tape recorder. I've got two tracks. And you can record your voice on that. With a door, typically you will have more than just a two-track and then we want to go from there. We want to record more than that. So we want to have multiple layers of audio. And why would you want that, you might ask? Well, if you're doing music, for instance, it makes a lot of sense. Because when you're recording music, you want to record your voice track. You've got your guitar and keyboards and drums. So you've got all these tracks going on at the same time. And within radio, uh, we also have... Well, not as many tracks. To be honest, we seldom use more than four or five tracks. Well, I do, but I'm just silly. <laughs> um, but really, it, but it's, just, it's just fun. 
And the thing is, you can layer your story. So you can you can have your voice track and you can have your interview on separate tracks and you can have some a music bed and you can have some ambience and you can have some effect sounds. And really having all these tracks just means that you've got loads of room just to play around with them. And they can play at the same time and you can blend the sounds. Am I right in thinking that Hindenburg really started from a point of being very simple, very straightforward? You've got to get the story down on tape, as we used to say years ago, or down into digital format. It's true in a sense, but I don't want to give the impression that Hindenburg is simple because it isn't. It's actually a very, very complicated system. But from our point of view, us, the ones who develop it, is really difficult because making something that's easy to use is actually quite tricky. So we're the ones with all the headaches and we just make it easy for you. That said, also, if you hear that it's a simple door, then you'll think, well, then I can't do all the complicated stuff that I want to do. And that's not true either. We've just made it easier for you to do things that are complicated. We've actually made it a lot easier for you to do things that... uh, if you were doing it in other systems, would either require that you're really good at it or it would take you a very long time. So really what I'm trying to do is not necessarily make, well, I am trying to make things easier. We all are in the the company, but uh, we're not encouraging you to make simple audio productions. We're actually trying to encourage you to make even more complicated audio productions because we're freeing up your mental time to think about the story and not think about the engineering side of things. Because why in God's name would you want to think about audio engineering if you're a storyteller? It doesn't make any sense. But we do give you the tools to structure your story. It'll be easier to set levels, do the whole post-production, so you don't need to worry about these things. So you can focus on what you're best at, which is storytelling. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Okay, I'm dying to ask this question. I know you kind of alluded to it on the website a little bit, but how did you get the name? I mean, how did that come out? Was that a couple of drinks or a couple of whiskeys and a couple of beers or what what was going on there? Well, no, that's my fault. So if I've offended anyone, it's really on me. But it, it wasn't meant to, in any way to be strange or offending. Keep in mind that when we started out 10 years ago, well, 12 years ago now, podcasting was in its infancy. So we weren't really targeting podcasters at the time. We were targeting radio journalists. Okay, so keep that in mind, radio journalists. So when it came to naming the product, I wanted to have a a name that would resonate with a radio journalist. If I went out and called it something like, uh, I don't know. Mabel or something, you know. (laughs) Well, yes, I was actually thinking the other way around. So Neo Audio something, something, something. That would have sent a message which would be more technical. And all the names that are out there are typically very technical names, you know, like Pro Tools or Audacity. It's all got to do with audio and the technical side of it, which is great, by the way. But I wanted a name that pointed to the storytelling side of it. And I did a bit of journalism in my time. And I remember having a teacher who was talking about uh, the first outside broadcasting feature that was ever done. And then he played the Hindenburg incident. And I was listening to that and I just got goosebumps. Not so much, well, the story in itself is uh, obviously is a great one, but, but this is the first time in history, as far as I know at least, that a reporter 
was in the field and actually recorded a story that was going on at the time. And just imagine being Herb Morrison, which was the reporter's name. He was standing there with a the sound engineer and he was, I don't know what they did, turned a record thingy-madongy and and uh, that's how they recorded. And this was back in 1937, so actually mobile recording equipment, you know, their mobile recorder weighed 50 kilos. Yeah. It's, you know, it's crazy. Huge things. And they were really just doing a test recording of this new equipment. So they probably thought, you know, okay, we know that the Hindenburg is coming in. And the Hindenburg, you know, it, it sounds like some Nazi thing that was to do with the Second World War, but it was really a... Well, the Nazis had admittedly t- taken over the company, but what it was was it was a, a luxury ship. It was a bit like the Titanic. I could have called it the Titanic, come to you think of it. Done. You that was a done. brilliant idea. Now, yeah. anyway, that's just been said. <laughs> so it, it, it was like a floating Titanic. It was on board were uh, only the millionaires and actresses and what have you. So it was an occasion when the Hindenburg came in and docked in, in New York. And just to clarify, we're talking about an airship here, aren't we? Exactly. Oh, yeah. Sorry, did we didn't mention yeah. that. It's an airship. I think yeah. you, you said it was floated and it was ship, and I didn't want to get people to think it was like the Titanic in the sea. But No, 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 it wasn't like the Titanic. Absolutely. Well, the, the thing is, most people actually do know what the, the Hindenburg is, and we, we hear that a lot. And there was another thing as well. We, you know, we, we started out just uh, uh, me and uh, my friend Preben, and obviously we we knew that we were not going to have any budget for this. So I thought, well, how about a name that people would actually remember? Perfect. I mean, that is just brilliance in itself. But I mean, I suppose these things come to you when you, like say you're relaxing, you're thinking no budget, you're grabbing at straws a little bit. I I want to take people on that journey of, you know, developing a piece of software because that's really, really important to my listeners. You know, how do you get from an idea you're sitting in Zambia, or Northern Rhodesia, as it used to be called all those years ago. You've had your, your drink. The lights have gone out because the jenny's gone or the electricity supply is gone. You're sitting there in the dark. <laughs> How do you get it from that inception, that idea that really inspires you to the reality of developing software and then getting it on the market? What is that process like? Oh, God. A lot of luck, I must say. There, there really is. Uh, well, no, okay, let's, let's put it another way. We can be slightly philosophical about it. It does require a bit of luck, but it also requires a lot of t- determination. So having an idea in itself, any listener out there probably has a really good idea for something that they would like to, to see realised. And often they will say, well, can't someone else pick up this idea and just I'll just take money for having a great idea and then someone else can benefit from it. But that's not really the way it works. Having the idea is the smallest part of it. From there, it's just a huge amount of work and determination and just getting up in the morning and just cracking on at it. There's having inspiration, as Peyton usually says, there's like like a few percent of it and the rest of it is perspiration. And on top of that, you need a bit of luck when it comes to the people that you run into. So I was in the fortunate situation. I was, as you were mentioning, we, we, I was just talking to Peyton, who's now my partner in the company, about this. And I had seriously not thought about doing this as a project. That was, it never started there. But as we were talking about it, and oh, I don't know if I mentioned that, we didn't know each other 
as working professionals, we were playing in a band together. Right. And the way that, I don't know how about other people, but if you if you meet in uh, social circumstances that have nothing to do with your job, you're not really talking work. So I had a, a very rudimentary idea of what it was he was doing. He was doing something, something for Nokia at the time. And I assumed he was a programmer. But then again, you know, we were playing in a band. It's not exactly something you want to sit down and talk about, is it? Well, I didn't talk about my job either. So as we were talking about this, I, it suddenly dawned on me. So wait a minute, you know something about programming, don't you? And so how, how difficult is this programming malarkey? Because I really had no idea. I, I come from a creative background. I had no idea how difficult this actually turned out to be. But he is, on top of being probably one of the best minds I've ever met, uh, a fantastic programmer, and he he's, he's always up for a challenge, in a sense. So I was asking, so how difficult can it be? And he was saying, well, it's quite difficult. And I was like, well, can it be done? And he said, yeah, it can be done. <laughs> right. And I was like, oh, I took that obviously as a yes, so I said, well, should we do it then? Oh, all right. <laughs> and it's kind of one thing led to another, and then we started uh, doing it in our spare time. Started, I uh, started knocking out some drawings, and he started coding. And he, he, one thing led to another, and suddenly we had something that actually looked like a piece of software that was usable. And we still had no idea if there was any market for it. I had a vague idea what I wanted the market to be, but I wanted to give it away to the developing world. As it turns out, not the best business idea. Yeah, who should have thought? I want to take it from the, yeah, we can do it, to, to when you had a really a kind of working model. You know, how long did that take, that kind of length of time? Can you remember? Uh, it didn't actually take that long. Oh, okay. Obviously, the, the, the program de has developed over the last many years, but we actually had a basic version. We called it basic. Oh, God, I would love to have Peyton here to actually tell him, because he can actually remember the dates and stuff. Okay. I think it took about, what was it? I think we had an alpha prototype within like six months or something like that. And that's pretty good, is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that's really, yeah. really good. And but and this was really, really basic. And I sent this off to some of my old colleagues because we just needed some feedback. Mm -hmm. Just to, Is this a, a good idea at all? And my colleagues were working at the Danish National Broadcaster. So I was, yeah, it was, that was a bit daunting. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, but, but hold on to that a minute. You kind of hesitated there, and I like that, because obviously you there was a couple of roadblocks or a couple of swerves in the road that you had to get around, yeah? Oh, God, there was loads of roadblocks. So tell me about those. Yeah, but the thing was, we, we, we came out of nothing. Yeah. Uh, and people were working uh, within radio and what have you. They obviously had doors already and they had the tools. And if you're working on a, uh, a national broadcaster, then you definitely have tools. But I came from there as well, so I knew also what the problems were with them. But anyway, these were friends and it was not practical for me to, to send things back and forth to Sub-Sahara. So I thought, I'll just use my, you know, my friends here. I can just have a chat with them. Mm -hmm. And we sent a very early alpha version to them and heard nothing back. Right. And the weeks went on and I heard nothing back. And I thought, oh, God. It's, this must be horrible. but And I don't want to inconvenience them either because, you know, they're working professionals. So 
So I get anyway, you know, I, I swallowed my pride and called a few of them up, and uh, so, uh, so have you had time to have a look at it? And uh, one of my old colleagues from the radio said, "Yeah, yeah, he has. It's a bit unstable." Yeah, I'm really sorry. I said, it's, it's an alpha version, and uh, yeah, of course it's unstable. Could you make it more stable? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. We could definitely make it more stable. And I was thinking again, why? Why Why more stable? Why is that the key thing? Yeah, because we're using it in our day-to-day production now, and it would really, really be nice if it was more stable. I was like, you're not supposed to do that. What are you doing that for? Wow. Wow. <laughs> in, if that isn't a rubber stamp, I don't know what is. That is, yeah. It was, and that's that suddenly created a lot of uh, <laughs> hot collars. Well, me and Peyton, we were just sitting there in his living room. It's the equivalent of us sitting in a garage. We are just sitting in his living room instead. And we just looked at each other and said, we really need to uh, to get this right. And then one thing led to another. I was talking about before, I'd uh, done some uh, some journalism and the, the, there's a Danish school of journalism that I went to and I, I knew some people there and I gave them a version to play around with and they actually turned out to be our first paying customers after a couple of years. Nice. Because they said, this is absolutely fantastic because if we want to teach our students how to do radio journalism, this is hand down's the best tool we've ever seen. Wow. What what a great validation for your initial ideas, eh? Yeah. Definitely, yeah. So so okay, so say you you're a couple of years along, okay? You you've got the kind of the alpha one off the ground, you're into the beta versions, testing that. Mm-hmm. You've got your first paying customer. What's the realities of scaling a business now? You had the idea, you've got it developed, you've got your first paying customer. How the heck do you get it to Hundreds, if not thousands, of paying customers. What's that look like? Well, you get someone in, else in who actually knows what he's talking about. Yeah, exactly. So, who was that, and what was the was the what was the the roadmap? Well, well, that was that was Chris. Okay, uh, I use my network a lot, and that, that's another thing I would encourage anyone who wants to do any kind of startup. I've I've actually met quite a few people through the years who had a good idea for something. And then you ask them, so what's your idea? I, say, oh, God, I can't tell you. You know, it's uh, th- this might be the one billion dollar idea, and if I tell you, you're just going to run with it. And to that, I can only say, God, I'm, I haven't got time for that, mate. Yeah, I yeah. really haven't, and no one else has. Yeah. And if you've got a good idea, just talk to everyone uh, you meet, and ev- anyone who's got any experience, just talk about it all the time, because that will give you brilliant feedback and it will also give you some connections because maybe the person you're talking to doesn't know someone who can help you along but he might or she might know someone else and can help you along but if you're just sitting at home with your one billion dollar idea and it doesn't meet the real world it's never going to go anywhere it really isn't you're halfway through listening to on another track with me david wilson My guest this week is Nick Dunkley from Hindenburg. Next, I wanted to ask Nick a little bit how he got to meet Chris. What did Chris think of the software from a business point of view? Well, the situation was I was talking to an old colleague of mine from DR who was a radio host, and her husband, I knew he was working in the gaming industry. 
and he was a really nice guy. So I thought, well, I'll just have a chat with him about the the whole digital. I knew nothing. So I was basically just asking anyone about anything, anything that would remotely resemble what I was doing. So he was in the gaming industry. I thought, oh, that would be interesting. Uh, so I set up a meeting with him. And so I went to, to their office. It was a, a company called Deadline Games. And I was expecting to meet him. Well, he did. You know, I, I was greeted by him. And he said, well, you need to talk to Chris. And Chris was the uh, the CEO of this uh, gaming company. And I was terrified. I said, I don't know why I should talk to you. The other guy said, I know, you know I, I'm on the creative side. You need to talk to a business person. So you talk to Chris. And so I sat down and talked to Chris about this uh, this idea, and he himself has a passion for for, for Africa. He was brought up in South Africa, and uh, so we we started talking uh, in the lines of that and how what this product could do for you know developing countries and so on and so forth. And he said it's really interesting. So. What he did then was just follow us on the sideline as we were developing the products. And once we had a finished product, things kind of fell into place so we could be part of our company, which was absolutely fantastic because we really needed, and I knew from the beginning that we really needed someone who had a business mind. And that's another thing about doing something. You have to know your own limitations. Yeah. Totally. Know what you're good at and stick to that. And if don't try to dwell into something that you know nothing about. Just leave that to someone else. That's great advice, actually. I, I know from my, myself, my point of view is that, you know, I'm great at doing the creating and the production, but seeing time to monetize it and do something else to take it to the next level. I know that's my limitation. And funny enough, I was just on a podcast with somebody yesterday and he was explaining how he can take you to that next level. And there's lots of people out there that can do that for sure. Sure, yeah. And they're, and they're passionate about it. Totally. I mean, absolutely. And I mean, I come from a sales background, but I only can apply myself to so many things at the time. You know, you've got to realize that there's only you and you can't spread yourself too thinly, you know, so yeah. do what you do best. That's the thing. But I'm not going to let you get away. Okay, come on. So All Nick right. Dunkley, going rich, ta- rich tapestry <laughs> of life. You know, you arrived in Denmark, you arrived in sub-Saharan Africa. There's a great backstory about mum and dad there. So I want to know the ins and outs, inside leg measurement as well, even if we go there. Oh, dear. We're going to be here all night. Okay. I'll go for it. Lifting. All right. Well, the short (laughs) version is, uh, as you might gather from uh, my somewhat still English accent, I was born in England. Um, But I moved to Denmark as my my dad died, and I moved over to my mother, who was in Denmark. Uh, Let's not dwell on that, because that's a very long story on its own. What did dad do, though? I'm intrigued. (laughs) What my dad did? Yeah, what did he do? He was a folk musician. He played in some uh, a band called Ian Campbell Folk Group. Oh, interesting. Uh, there's probably some of your older listeners that might have heard of them. Uh, yeah, they were, they were pretty uh, popular in the 70s, if you were into folk. Yeah, and where did mum and dad meet? Come on, how did they meet? Because she was from Denmark. Well, yeah, she's from Denmark. And uh, they met when he was on tour in uh, in Scandinavia, and she, she met him in a, a pub, I guess. And the rest is history, because you arrived. Yeah, then I arrived. Yeah, I was born, and they got divorced. But I, I stayed in England with my dad, and she moved back to Denmark. And then, unfortunately, he, he went and, and died when I was about seven, I think. That's tough, yeah. 
Yeah, it's that. Don't you shouldn't do that on your kids. Wait until the kids are a bit old if you can. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what was the immediate effect? Did you have any family though there that could help you and sort of facilitate your passage to Denmark? Well, I was, I, I was, I was saying, I was brought up in in England, and I had the whole English side of the family. So when I came to Denmark, I knew nothing. I'd never been in Denmark. I didn't speak a word of Danish. I had some Danish siblings, but that that was about it. So I didn't really take kindly to the idea of being deported to a different country. Wow. But anyway, you know, it's uh, it might have been for the best. Um, I don't know. You just don't, do you? I have no idea how things would have turned out if I stayed in England. But, you know, they didn't turn out horribly here. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. But, you know, it's difficult. Can you remember the feelings you had when you kind of ran, arrived in Danish soil and thought, what the heck am I going to do now? I don't know the language. Don't know who my relatives are. My mum's here. When you're a child, you don't. I don't think you think too much about how you're going to cope. It's just uh, you just hope that people around you are going to be there for you, really, because you're so dependent on everyone else. I remember small things like the food. It was just so different from from the English food. I was brought up on you know, uh, squishy white sandwich bread and that kind of thing. And that was absolutely lovely. And then you, in Scandinavia, you got rye bread. And in the 70s, rye bread was horrible. Nowadays, it's actually quite nice because it's homemade. But it, it, back in the 70s, it's absolutely horrid. It was terrible. Not for Danes because they knew it and they'd been brought up with it. They, they thought it was what it was. I hated it. So just small things like that. And obviously learning the language. If you're an English-speaking person, I guess that goes for any English-speaking person, even children, going abroad means that you can talk to anyone in English. You don't really need to make any effort whatsoever. Even as a child, I could actually get away with just speaking English. Um, but obviously that's, that, that wouldn't really work. So at some point everyone said, okay, now we're only going to speak Danish to you. When did it finally click? Do you think, when did you finally feel as if you're, you weren't an Englishman abroad, you were, you, you clicked and oh, you feel a little bit Danish or did that never happen? Oh, it did. But very gradually. I think, especially when you are away from your motherland, you feel very attached to it, um, especially mentally. And I would, for the longest time, think of myself as being English, be very proud of being English. But then I, I often obviously went to visit, had family over there. And I, I could feel over the years, especially when I became a teenager, that I was having a harder and harder time relating to to the culture not in a bad way don't get me wrong it was just i was now brought up on on danish pop culture if that's a thing you know, danish television danish radio uh, danish literature what have you and when i came to england language is one thing but another thing is the culture surrounding the language like what are things called and that, because I wasn't living there, there was many things that I didn't have words for, and I still don't. If I go into a, a, a hardware shop in England and I'm looking for, well, now I'll figure out a word, I actually know a spanner. 
I might not know that word. I might just be pointing at some tool or go down to the bakery and just say, oh, that looks really nice, that thing you got in the... I have no idea what the words are for these things because they they weren't around me. I know what they are in Danish. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. You must have experienced the same thing. Totally, totally. I have, yeah. Well, it's like the colloquialisms, you know, the the kind of off-the-cuff comments or words that, you know, are spoken between friends, you know, and and in the workplace. You just don't get exposed to it. And they refer to, to something that might be on top of the pops at the moment or something like that. And you don't have that reference. You don't. And you don't get the joke. No, you don't. But here's the thing. And I mean, I've experienced it quite a lot. I felt sometimes in my life, I felt very isolated, you know, very isolated because I didn't have my culture from the UK. Mm-hmm. I don't have the culture here from Canada because I'm not naturally from here, uh, even though the language links is... But also I feel quite liberated as well. I don't know, did that make sense to you, that you're kind of independent? Well, I think for you it must be different because you've been traveling so much. I still had a base in Denmark. Okay. Got so uh, I, I definitely understand where you're coming from. But for, for, for me, I could feel that every time I came back to Copenhagen, I live in Copenhagen, it felt more and more as coming home. Oh, yeah. So just gradually over the years, and at some point I would just off. Oh, my, this is home. <laughs> There's no point in kidding myself. Okay, so let's fast forward. You, you got yourself sorted out. You kind of assimilate yourself into Denmark. Mum's still alive. You know, you go to school. What's your dreams and ambitions? What's Nick Dunkley thinking about now that his life has just been... T- As a kid? Yeah, well, what's happened? Your life has been t- upturned. Where are you going? Have you got any ideas about dreams, ambitions of what you wanted to do with your life? I guess the same as most kids probably wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> Everybody says that. that Everybody says that. I can't actually remember what I did once. I probably wanted to be evil Knievel, to be honest. Well, of course he was big in the 70s. Well, but when do, I suppose my question really is, when did you suddenly find that things fell into place and you thought... Audio and radio really attracts me in some way. And what got you started on that? What <laughs> no, got you started you on that? You really road? want the backstory, don't you? I this bloody well do. Come it. on, sort it out, man. Well, I actually never, ever had that thought. Because, okay, when I was young, one of the things I loved to do was to draw. I would be drawing on everything, on anyone, and at any time. And... Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if this is very typical for, for teenagers. We, we lived in the suburb area and there was there was a lot of mischief and drugs and that kind of thing going around. And unfortunately, my mom was chronically ill at, for, for many years. So she would be in bed. And so there would just be me and some friends in the kitchen. And we, we, we didn't really go out we would just make a big pot of tea and sit around the kitchen table and i would just have a drawing pad and we would just chat for hours on end (laughs) while the world around us just seemed utterly chaotic and it was it was really great in many ways so what i wanted to do i wanted to to illustrate that that's really what i wanted to do but you know things don't necessarily turn out that way. I started my first job actually in a hardware store. So I kind of got derailed from the creative side. And as I was doing that, I was talking about just jump, running into people before. I ran into uh, a, a girl I knew who was a singer 
and she asked me if I wanted to be a keyboard player in a band. And I, actually, I had a friend of mine had given me an old organ. It's a really crap thing. And I learned myself to play like three chords so I could play, I guess, a Perfect. C and a G and F. That, that was really what I could do. But I really enjoyed it, but it, despite it, it really sounded horrible. Uh, and I told her, you know, I wasn't lying per se, but I did tell her I could play the keyboard. <laughs> and she said, what, do you want to be in a band? And I was like, uh, all right. <laughs> that was it. You just went along for the ride. <laughs> that was it. Well, but, and of course, probably the late 70s, early 80s, I'm imagining this Oh, this is, is now, the mid-80s now, yeah. yeah. Yeah, got you, got you. So it was a creative time, wasn't it? You know, you could get started on a keyboard and three chords. You could, definitely, yeah. Yeah, no one played very well, uh, but we had fun. Uh, we had fun, and I, I, I just uh, fi- found uh, the music just to be a different creative outlet for me. I had a lot on my mind, as you might imagine. That was a was somewhat troubled teenager, and instead of doing drugs, I just wrote songs instead. And so one song led to another, and one band led to another, and that was really how I met Peyton at the end of the day. Right. He became a part of a band that I started. So give me the kind of bridge then that got you from the band across to the Danish broadcasting. So what happened was I was doing this job in a shop and I obviously knew I was, I was, I was never going to stay in a shop. That wasn't really for me. So when the apprenticeship ended, uh, I was unemployed and I thought, great, now I can play in a band. But you can't really do that. You know, so you know, like a month later, someone was knocking on my door saying, "You need to, you know, get a job." I said, "I don't want one." I said, "Well, you, you, we're going to give you one, but I don't want one." So here, you know, so what are you doing? I'm playing music. So it sounds like you're in <laughs> creative thing. Yeah, All right. Do you want to work in a local radio station? No. What? Seriously? <laughs> well, well, you're going to, but I don't want to. I just want to play my back, but you're going to play, you're going to work at a radio station. All right, then. All right, fair enough. You got dragged kicking and screaming into the radio station. That, that's I did. bizarre. I did. <laughs> and even more bizarre than that, when I started out there, because of the union thing and what have you, being in the shop, the only thing I could do at the radio station was sit in the reception. So I actually had nothing to do with the actual radio production. And I was, oh, what in God's name am I doing here? And I had to be there, I can't remember, for three or four months. And I was really just, I just want to go home and I, I've got stuff to do. But then I, uh, they sort of just dragged me into different projects and I just found myself suddenly doing some uh, uh, some basic sound engineering. Just, well, I can't just hold this fader while I go to the toilet kind of thing. Yeah, know it well. <laughs> Um, and I, I found that I was uh, I was actually enjoying that. Then a time ended here at the radio station and went back to playing music and then I was still unemployed. So I ended back at the radio station again because, you know, this is the way things work. And I found I was actually quite good at it. And the people at the station did as well. And they offered me a job. Uh, so now I was suddenly full-time at this local radio station and doing the band thing on the side. And this radio station was a really unique place because it was kind of a, a, the place that 
all the the freelancers that have been unemployed for too long, like journalists and freelancers, just ended up in this radio station. So there was a lot of people there who'd actually worked for the national broadcaster at some point or would later on. And they kept encouraging me to actually apply for a job at national broadcasting. And that was another apprenticeship. And I said, well, I can't because... All, every, they have a list of things that you had to have. You had to have a certain degree. You shouldn't have a background in music. You shouldn't have too much experience. Blah, blah, blah. Every single thing on the list that they wanted from uh, an apprentice, I hadn't got it. I was like the the antithesis of what they wanted. Just like antimatter, really. Yeah. And so I was I was really discouraged. I said, "Well, I really appreciate you keep sending me this uh, application form, but I." I, do, I wouldn't know where to begin. But I was surrounded by journalists. So they said, well, well, we'll help you out. To be honest, they didn't help me out. They just did it. They, so it was, it was like one of these things when someone started writing it and they send it off to uh, someone else and say, oh, no, you have to add this to it. And they, they'll probably be looking for something like this. And they all knew national broadcasting in a sense that they could actually add something to it yeah so we we sent uh, well they sent it off i was like i'm not going to have anything to do with this stupid project i'm never going to get in so they sent it off and uh lo and behold back came we would really like to see you wow for an interview how did you feel about that I was really touched. I am still. It's amazing though, isn't it? Serendipity, how, how things just line up, isn't it? Sometimes. It is. And it's just also the, the kindness of people. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you were in a rich kind of world of creatives there, weren't you? People who really you could learn from by osmosis almost, wasn't it? Just by being there with them. Well, do you mean at the national broadcaster? Or Not just the, the national broadcast, but where you were at the original radio well, station. Well, everywhere kind of where- you are, you can learn from people. Yeah. You always have to be open to that people will be able to inspire you in some way. Yeah. Even that I I am, you know, ask anyone of my old colleagues, an arrogant bastard, but I am very, well, I can explain the arrogant bit. Because, yeah, because I'm going to interrupt you. You don't come across as being arrogant, but is that the kind of melding of years? <laughs> it, is a, and the, it is halfway joking. Uh, yeah. Okay. So why do you say that? That's intriguing. Well, can, well, all right, hold that thought and it just, okay. just go back to starting at, well, the interview at DR. So I, I came to this interview and I have never been this scared of anything in my entire life. Like, you, it's like going up to the BBC. I don't know if you've ever thought about doing that, going up to the BBC and say, whatever happens now is going to change my life. Probably for the worst. Absolutely. They're probably just going to throw me out. But this, I was terrified. So anyway, I got to this interview and they, they looked at this application and they looked at me as a, and actually a, a later colleague of mine who was looking at this and he'd taken me out of the, the pile of applications as we just have to talk to this kid because this is, this is so whacked what he wrote here. So he was there. And then I just had to convince them that uh, I probably was the right guy for the job. And I was so different from from everyone else that would been trained in uh, at, at the time because of my you know odd background from what they were looking for. 
We're fortunate it was quite cool meets. And this might actually lead up to some of the, the, the arrogance, not because I, I was like, I know what I'm doing and no one can tell me anything. That wasn't really it. I, I dedicated myself like 500% to what I was doing. I was working all the time. And I just wanted to push myself and I wanted to be pushed by anyone who was around me. Again, finding inspiration. I was I kept seeking the best people in in the house. Is it possible to do this? Can I can I improve myself in, in doing this? Just because I thought it was such a good time. And, you know, I, I like pushing myself and learning new things. And most of the time that went well because the people I was working with were really, really talented. And you, you have that, um, when you've got two elements and you get a third element that's larger than the two elements on their own, that, and we all, we've all, hopefully everyone has tried that in some kind of creative uh, context. And you just, it's a bit like being a band if you've ever been in a band. You can be a part of the band, but the whole band in itself is its own organism. And it's the same thing if you're working with uh, really good colleagues. Something is just created that's larger than the both of you. When I then was, was stabled as arrogant, that was when I was working with people that I found lazy and they were not doing their best. Oh, yeah. And I was trying really, really to be polite. I never said to someone, what, what you're doing is crap. And I was never like that. It, was, it just oozed out of me. I couldn't hold it back. You know, every vein in me or whatever, every fiber in me was just saying, this could be so much better if you just applied yourself just a little. And these were like journalists that have been working for 30 years. And I was just looking, I didn't say anything. They could just see in my face that, okay, I have had not had a very good day <laughs> in the field. But, but, but where does that, where does that come from? Again, I, I'm intrigued by that because, you know, like you say, you did the teenage thing and you wanted just to do your band and be lazy, you know, as we were, you know, doing our teenage years and getting our twenties. And then we have a reality check and we have to get some money, to get a car and get a life and all that sort of thing. So where did that switch happen for you? Oh, that never really came well, up. But, but, it, no, it never but you, did. You have high standards, clearly, but but where did that reality kick in? Yeah, but 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 not for family and car and house and that. I still don't have a house. Just really, never my goal. Mm -hmm. No, I, I don't know. Uh, you're going back to what the drive is. I, you know, we talked a bit about my backstory, and it was a bit wonky. It, it wasn't an easy uh, upbringing. It really wasn't. And when I got to be a, a teenager, it was fundamental for for how I became later on because everything was in turmoil. I didn't have answers for anything and I didn't have any uh, one around me to tell me what to do. So um, I was really trying to, 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 to grasp what the world was all about and I felt quite alone doing it. So I looked to, to literature, to uh, psychology and philosophy and what have you to see if I could find any answers and through the the creative side fortunately I was creative because otherwise I'd probably be you know dead on the street and now if I hadn't been had a creative side so through that I could kind of try to express myself by either drawing at first and then writing and uh, I must say if you if, if you're not feeling too well uh, <laughs> as a young person do join a band 
Really? If anyone's ever going to ask me about any advice about how to get on in life, join a band that will definitely help you. Uh, and it really did for me, and especially the writing side of things. Because and and in seeing that I wasn't alone with that feeling, what having get other people around me just to ignite that feeling that was that was great. So so that sense of I had to apply myself to be able to survive really. Um, that just stuck with me, and I, I, I guess it still does, really, because I've I've never been in a situation where I felt well now I can just sit back and hope that someone else is going to take the reins. It's it's always been you have to do it yourself because no one's ever going to no one's going to be there to pick you up. You have to get on your own feet. Okay. I'm not saying that's a good thing because that's actually a horrible thing because uh, you should be able to depend on people and if you fall back you should have someone there to catch you um but if not <laughs> you you just just keep going yeah yeah uh, and you you'll make it you you at some point and make it that's such just a stupid thing i don't want to imply that i've made it in some way make it is you'll survive because making it isn't getting to a certain point or having wealth, which really isn't a point in itself. It's just being, being I don't know, being able to look yourself in the eye and saying, I'm doing my best. That's for me really is making it. I, I, I love that. And I, I totally get what you're saying by making it because it's always about forward momentum as well. It's trying to keep the momentum, just keep going, you know, just, just because sometimes you get really down about it, you know, like you get yeah. to a, a brick wall and you suddenly think, what am I going to do now to have no friends? I'm in a country that, you know, don't know the culture. I've got, you know, assimilated, but I still don't feel as if I belong. But what you managed to do was you managed to kind of figure that route map out, probably not consciously. You just ended up being in certain places at certain times and serendipity kicked in. And, and yeah. again, it's been fortunate. I'm not going to say I haven't been fortunate in many ways. I would still say that just reaching out, because if you sit at home and wait for someone to knock on the door and say, would you like to be a part of the party? That's not going to happen. You have to, unfortunately, you have to get out there Correct. and actually uh, be there. And there, there is a part of it that you can have fortune, fortune in many ways. And despite being called arrogant at some points, I've, I've actually always felt it was quite uh, likable. Not, not that I'm saying I was likable, but other people go, oh, yeah. Do you want to be a part of this? And that's I'm, I'm, I know it's, it's it's a really really horrible thing to say, but but it is one of those things where you can just be fortunate, or and I'm, I'm assuming that for some people that's not easy, and that must be horrible. That must be one of the worst things. And I can see it also with my with my own kids. If I feel that they feel excluded or something like that. that is the most horrible thing in the entire world so my heart really goes out to anyone who does feel excluded anyway and i was very very fortunate to be included i might not have necessarily had uh, the the people around me that i was hoping for but i had other people around me i had i had uh, uh, friends and and band members and colleagues and they always just seem to be there well what do you think of the conversation with nick dunkley from hindenburg systems it was just like having a great conversation with the best mate in the pub 
And what was wonderful about it is Nick goes on to reveal what actually happened when he went to South Africa and the tragic events that surrounded that trip. But what it did do is it helped to launch Hindenburg onto the DAW market. So queue up the next episode of On Another Track with me, David Wilson, to hear about the next turning point in Nick Dunkley's life of Hindenburg Systems. This is a BrickCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.